Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. What's up, y'all? This is Sid from Push Black, one of your producers on Black History here. Thanks for tuning in to another season of the show. We always appreciate your time and your support. Now, when we kicked off season five, Jay said something really important that I want to revisit, and that's we can't stop, won't stop, talking about Black liberation and building toward Black liberated futures. Because we can't stop and won't stop talking, we're having these sorts of conversations anywhere you get your Push Black content. So today, we're going to share a great discussion from our Instagram live series. Now, on this live show, a few members on Push Black's team get into the tough but candid conversations that we need to have. And they're happening in real time, which means you can easily participate. So in a few minutes, check out this live convo between three folks on Push Black's team as they delve into an issue that especially affects the daily lives of Black people in America. Be sure to join the conversation, engage the community, and never stop talking. Stay tuned. We're so happy to have you all here today. Uh, we really wanted to have this conversation about fat phobia and uh, its history, how it impacts the Black community, and uh, just talk deeper about how we're seeing folks talk about it on social. And before we jump in, we can do a quick round of intros. Uh, my name is Jerea Bradley. I'm a product manager at Push Black, working on our Instagram, TikTok channels, and a few other um, products along with Tabitha, who I'll throw it to. Thank you, Drea. Um, my name is Tabitha. I am also a product manager. Um, I work on um, a lot of our criminal justice initiatives as well as, well as like the ads program and um, other fun, exciting things like this. Um, now, pass it to you, Brooke. Hi, everyone. I'm Brooke Brown. I am the Senior Digital Content Manager for Push Black, and I oversee all of our content channels, uh, making sure that broadcasts get to you. Awesome. And I just realized I forgot to put my white shirt on. You left me out. <laughs> You're, good. You're good. That's, a, that's the host shirt. shirt. You're so <laughs> white shirt. 
But yeah, so we want to preface this conversation uh, just by saying that we would like for this to be a safe space for our viewers and our hosts. So we ask that you approach this conversation with compassion and open ears and be mindful of any responses in the comment section. And of course, only share what feels comfortable to you. So to go ahead and get started, um, we're talking about fat phobia, and I want to read through one of our stories that actually ignited this conversation. Uh, we were pretty surprised at some of the responses we got on social. So I'll go ahead and read it through to give you all the proper context. And it says, um, is this why our culture hates fat people? Uh, the violence of the Atlantic slave trade brought with it many negative culture shifts in Europe. One big shift was the change in body image and beauty standards, and Black people lay in the center of all of it. Why is it that during the Renaissance era, there are so many depictions of curvaceous Black women, but since the 19th century, only slender figures have been glorified? Strangely enough, the answer is anti-Blackness and the Atlantic slave trade. As the Europeans began to colonize and enslave African people, they also began coming up with strange concepts about race to justify slavery. One of them was about body fat. They argued that Black people were fat and that they were fat because they were inferior and white people needed to be as thin as possible to show how much better they were than Africans. By the height of the slave trade, that body fat rationale became another standard in determining who was enslaved and who was not. Before it was just skin color, but after hundreds of years of intermixing, they needed an additional standard to keep as many people enslaved as possible. And to this day, the medical field still frames body fat through this anti-Black framework. Not only does it ignore all the healthy ways the body can exist, it also contributes to a culture where fat people are considered less than. We need to begin to un excuse me, we need to begin unlearning all the anti-Black messages we have received about health, body fat, and body image so we can unlock clearer pathways to Black well-being. So there was um, a lot of pushback, pushback that I was kind of surprised to see ignored the basis of this story, uh, which to me was as Europeans began to colonize and enslave African people, they also came up with these concepts about Black people, which was body fat. And um, the knee-jerk responses kind of affirmed what this story and a majority of ours are trying to address, which is that white supremacy took something about us and just like our Blackness, weaponized it as something to further demean us. And as someone who manages the page, this is one of the rare cases when people's emotional responses overtook the comment section and their receptivity to the historical basis of the topic. And I know I have a few theories about um, why this happened, but I want to um, open it up to Tabitha and Brooke for input. Yeah, thanks, Drea. That, that is an interesting question. Um, I do, I think that there's been a reckoning about a lot of other things recently, like such as police brutality and systemic racism. Um, but like the racist and like capitalist reasons behind fat phobia, like it's just not a part of the mainstream discourse yet. And I'm hoping that it, it becomes a part of it. I mean, if you even think about like before George Floyd, the majority of people um, in this country outside of the black community, they weren't seeing racism as a big issue. But then that changed when the global protests happened. So I feel like this is just another one of those things that it's going to take us continuously having this discourse um, for people to, to understand, um, you know, what they've learned about health and fatness is just bigotry, to be honest. Um, and like, we've had like other conversations like about um, 
like as it relates to fatness and fat phobia, or I'm saying we haven't had the conversation and we're literally, literally witnessing like that fat phobia, like you said, in the comment section. And then like two, like to keep in mind, like Sabrina Strings who wrote um, Fear in the Black Body, like that was something that was very recent. Like I think it came out in 2019. So it's going to take time for like this to, you know, come out of just these little pockets of academic circles or advocacy circles to get into the mainstream um, discourse. I mean, you even think about like history, we pretty much learned that like, you know, there was these white guys and there was these white guys that fought these white guys and then they found the country. And like, we know that there's so much more to American history. And so we're fighting the whitewashing of so much history that we've learned. And this is just another part of it. Um, I think it's also like become normalized when you think about uh, like fat phobia in our society to think about, uh, you know, gyms and like those being pushed on us and like detox teas and juices just to lose weight, which are dangerous. And then like BMI is so deeply ingrained in our brains where like that's something that they've been telling us since we were in elementary school. Like we knew, you know, what our BMI was. Like I remember, you know, knowing what our BMI was in in middle school. And um, that's something that's so deeply ingrained to us that I feel like it causes like a visceral reaction to hear something that's different, not understanding how deep the whitewashing of history goes. Um, And then I also think that Lastly, is that the the capitalist factors contributing to fat phobia um, mm-hmm. in a society where thinness provides you social capital? And a lot of people might not want to admit this, but it is true that thinness mm-hmm. provides you with social capital. And people so desperately want to make a better lives for themselves and their families that at the same time they're dealing with economic insecurity, like dealing with the rising cost of like housing and stagnant wages. So, um, like people are inadvertently trying to play this game and get access to the security. And unfortunately, that security is tied to thinness and and to fat shaming. Yeah. Yeah. You know, history definitely adds context to the current challenges bigger bodies face receiving respect from both white people and the Black community, right? It's Mm -hmm. so fascinating to learn that fat phobia is more um, a recent phenomenon from a historical standpoint, right? So if you look at the Hot and Top Venus, also known as Sarah Bartman Zoo Exhibit, right? So they had this African woman, you know, who's curvaceous and, um, you know, on display in, you know, a cage. And they had her out there looking, you know, like an animal or something. But um, despite the label of savage, you know, our women and their curvaceous figures were considered exotic and mesmerizing and perplexing, even to the early 19th century Europe, right? Um, but as we noted in our story, right, this transatlantic slave trade and religion actually changed America's perspective on the matter. Um, so to check this out, right? So according to writer and researcher Sabrina Strings, right, you mentioned her before, the author of Bearing the Black Body, it was actually Protestant Protestantism that encouraged temperaments in all pleasures, right? That included your food, right? So the by the early 19th century, particularly in the U.S., fatness was deemed evidence of immorality and racial inferiority, right? Mm-hmm. It was also a means to signal class division, right? So you talked about the capitalistic um, component of, uh, of fat phobia, right? 
Um, so girls and women who belong to the social elite use their emaciated bodies as a means to show their superior class status. And as a white woman back then, you didn't want to come across as voracious, right? And without self-control and fatness was supposedly the side effect of that kind of pe- kind of behavior. And if you would, um, it, you know, you would think that it'd be the opposite, right? You think a fat body would signal elite status because, you know, you, ha- you can afford to eat the more decadent foods and, and um, you don't have to work as hard and things like that. Right. Um, And it kind of sets you apart from the poor have nots. But gluttony was viewed as an immoral. um, It it was viewed as immoral in the Protestant tradition. And now here we are. Then this equates to privilege. (laughs) So the desire for thinness precedes the medical establishment's concerns about excess weight by nearly 100 years. It shows that slimness, while associated today with medical concerns, was not primarily historically about health. So when making the argument of which comes first, the chicken or the egg, a desire in pop culture for a more spelt aesthetic came before any indictment from the medical community. That being overweight is a major concern as it relates to optimal health standards, right? And just a little bit more um, history, I wanna make sure that I break down for you all, right? So we talked about the BMI, um, the body mass index, right? Mm-hmm. We're all familiar with that. You know, your height plus your your height, however the formula goes, right? You plug in your height, you plug in your weight, and you plug in your age and your gender, and it's supposed to spit out this number that tells you, right. like, whether you're overweight or not, right? Um, or whether you are a candidate for certain health concerns, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the BMI itself has a racist history, not grounded in medical science, medical science, right? It was invented nearly 200 years ago by this man named Adolf Quetelet, I think is hmm. how you pronounce it, right? Mm-hmm. And he was an academic with no medical background. So he created this, this chart, right? And he was actually, um, he was actually credited as being one of the founders of this racist pseudoscience called phrenology. And the detailed, um, it was, phrenology was basically the, like, you look at someone's head shape and their size and, and Mm -hmm. um, decide whether they're, you know, going to be smart or not, whether they have certain personality traits, whether they're considered, you know, inferior racially. Um, It was all that, right? That was phrenology. And this, you know, Adolf guy, he, you know, basically came up with this chart that said, this is what the average man should be like. But mind you, he's saying average man for the European standard, right? Because he's using examples from the Irish, from um, the English um, or the British, excuse me. And he's not really going off of, you know, a a, a worldwide sample, right? He's just going off of this um, small uh, component of like, you know, this is where he lives and this this is what the average build for the men that he is around um, are. So anyways, um, from the 19th century into the 20th, it was used to scientifically justify eugenics. And eugenics is the systemic sterilization of disabled people, autistic people, immigrants, poor people, people of color, and other bigoted, racist, dangerous ideals, right? And so the NIH and the WHO, um, WHO, the World Health Organization, and mm-hmm. other um, World Health um, authorities dusted off this BMI chart in the, um, in the 1980s. And now here we are still proposing its use. And this is the plentiful historic evidence that fat shaming is indeed a function of racism. 
<laughs> that was a lot. Period. That was a lot. I just thank you. Thank you, bro. As it relates to fat phobia, there was a, a paper in 2010 in the American Journal of Public Health, and they talked about how weight stigma poses serious risks to fat people's psychological and physical health. And um, and they also talked about how like that that uh, that risk posed because of fat phobia can actually outweigh the risk of the weight itself. And then get this, they said that according uh, according to studies in the American Journal of Physiology, food restriction of almost any form routinely upsets hormonal regulation, potential uh, potentially setting off serious mental and physical health problems, and ironically, even more weight gain. And um, because we're so hyper-focused on thinness as being indicative of health, we're causing health problems to fat and thin people alike because uh, we're not asking them to prioritize like their total health, their mental, right. physical, emotional, spiritual health. We're not asking them to do that. We're just saying, this is what we think health looks like. And so you need to be this. Mm-hmm. And hyper-focusing on that outward appearance, it's not even focusing on their actual health. Like that's right. the, the sad part about, you know, doing that. Another one of the sad parts. And then just to watch Lizzo get bullied for loving herself, that is so sad. And you can't do anything right. I mean, she's like a vegan. She's working out. Like, so let's stop lying and saying that, you know, the reactions are because she's, what What do people say? Um, promoting an unhealthy lifestyle. That's a lie. That's like right. a flat out lie because she's doing the opposite. And I think that even relating it back to the comments on our video, people are so triggered by fatness, which just... It, that blows my mind because like how are you triggered about how somebody else looks like you know but again speaking to the point of this series when we talk about privilege like that's a um side effect of privilege i think in the same way that some folks don't want to digest how colorism is a thing and how light-skinned people operate in this world differently than dark-skinned people they, they yeah. it's the same thing with fat phobia and people not wanting to accept the fat or people wanting to hold on to the little bit of power that they get and yeah. if you're skinny and you can, you know, feel empowered because you're fit and because you're whatever and, you know, have a, a element of being able to, you know, step on top of someone else, especially if, as Black people, when we experience so many other things that make us feel small, it's like, I get it, but then I don't get it. And I want us all to be realistic and honest about it and stop um, disguising it under you being worried about someone else's health because that's just not the truth at all. And who are you to be worried about? somebody else's health let's just start there like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think it also speaks to the complete lack of empathy that people have because i think there are some people who are thin or who are privileged who ultimately don't give a crap but then there are also people who because they have never gone through something Mm -hmm, they say that that doesn't exist and it's like well actually you could find out it exists by like one researching two listening to people who've experienced it like it's very it's it's simple and like it's a big empathy problem that we have too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the problem with labeling fatness as repugnant is that it affects everyone, right? Like everyone, it, it, it truly does affect not just Black women, right? Because yeah. now you have a problem where regardless of your gender identity or your class status or your racial background, there's this pressure to be thin. But tying small bodies to virtuousness is dangerous, right? Because then 
thin does not always equal healthy. I think someone um, said that in the comment section, right? right. It doesn't, it, it doesn't um, always equate to, to healthiness, especially not when we consider mental health, right? Our, our country is full of big and small people struggling with mental health crises stemming from body image troubles, right? And that's something that ought to be addressed more urgently than criticizing perfectly healthy individuals who happen to naturally be bigger than what a BMI chart might dictate. Right. And to kind of bring it all together, um, one point that, Brooke, I think you brought up when we were, or phrase rather, when we were talking about this is like, it, it put it into perspective for me, perception versus reality. Like people oftentimes perceive fat people as lazy and unmotivated and not doing, not doing anything to change their circumstances. Um, again, as if fatness equals unhealthiness, like someone said in the comments. And I think that oftentimes that's number one, again, as someone who struggled with my weight, that's hardly the reality. Doing the mental work is just as taxing as doing the physical therapy, being around Black women who love themselves, positive images like um, Lizzo, those were all integral to my weight loss journey, more so than the doctors I went to who only expressed displeasure in my BMI and made the assumption that like I just sat around and did nothing. Like There's so many other things that contribute. And I think that one, externally, um, as just people people do that to people but also on the back end doctors like this is what people experience mm-hmm. when they go to their doctor's office and they see you they see your bmi and it's like everything else goes out the window and speaking to um different elements too that could cause fatness like let's not even talk about the issues like food deserts and access to affordable and healthy foods the time and energy to prepare those foods like there's so many factors that are out of our control that can contribute to weight gain and obesity especially as black people because stress is one of the top ones and we all stress on the daily if if you don't have stress in your work you got stress in your life as a black person and these blanket beliefs of irresponsibility are extremely dangerous in the long run and i think people don't realize that and dangerous on the mental front, but also uh, when it comes to our health and actually getting quality care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the Black community struggles with fighting off chronic disease and higher death rates, not because of their weight class, but uh, because system- systemically, we lack access to the tools and resources that would help us actually lead those lives of vitality, right? So we need America to answer for like air and water pollution in our neighborhoods. I'm looking at you, Flint, Michigan, right? We need corporate America and the food industry to make nutritious food available in our communities. I'm looking at you, food yes. deserts or food swamps, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we need to destigmatize mental health care and make access to therapeutic solutions more affordable. Like all this right. and more is what we need to put our energy towards pushing back on rather than fat shaming and body shaming and demeaning people with larger bodies. Right. Yeah. So that's, amen. You, you have the, um, a list of the solutions, Brooke, that people just need to run with because it's, mm-hmm. it's not, it's, it's not, it's not complicated. Like it just needs to be prioritized. And like, mm-hmm. that's, that's also a hurtful part of this whole thing. Uh, but so there's this doctor, her name is Dr. Mary Himmelstein and she's an assistant professor at Kent State University. And she actually studies how weight stigma affects our health. 
And she speaks openly about the discrimination people of a higher body weight experience, especially at the doctor. And so, um, and she concluded that like larger people often receive poor medical care. Like there is research, like it is not like stories. You should listen to those period. But if you need research, that exists as well. It's big. Um, and, and Himmelstein, she mentioned, she says, uh, when you come into the doctor as a higher weight woman, if your complaint could be related to your weight, that's what it's often assumed to be. They don't even yeah. look at anything else. They're going to automatically just tell you to lose weight. And it often translates into the doctor requiring a patient to lose weight before they can run any other tests to get another diagnosis. And time is precious when it comes to receiving medical care. Like a lot of mm-hmm. these things can be very time pertinent. And, you know, like, Tale is old as time, it's one of my favorite movies. Um, when people don't feel heard, they stop showing up, mm-hmm. leading to even poor health outcomes. Yeah. So yeah. this is this is this is doing a disservice in so many different ways because it seems like doctors just can't relate to the humanity of bigger people. Mm-hmm. And it <laughs> makes me think of sorry to cut you off. Um, like the black infant mortality rate. It's the same mm-hmm. thing where they perceive us as being able, as black women, take take away the weight. So imagine adding the weight on top of that. Yeah. Um, more capable of um uh what's the I'm blanking, um, taking pain and not mm-hmm. really like seeing mm-hmm. us like for what we're saying or like assuming that we're exa- like it all lends together. So when you layer these things, like to be a black woman is already dangerous enough to be a black woman to having a kid is dangerous. And then add on top of that, that you're fat. Like there's so much that's literally detrimental to our health on top of the external and people bullying you online. For sure. For sure. And that's why I like tale as old as time, because all of these marginalized people. And like you said, if when you start intersecting, um, being marginalized, like it gets even worse. And it's the exact same thing that keeps happening over and over again. And there is a pattern here. Like there is a, yeah. there is a pattern of behavior of treatment. And so there's this, um, there's this peer reviewed medical journal, uh, medical journal, it's called the JAMA Network. And according to this research that was conducted by Dr. Rita Rubin, the data shows that doctors spend less time in the appointments of larger people. Mm -hmm. In a 2015 review of this empirical literature on a a weight bias bias in healthcare, the author concludes, many healthcare providers hold strong negative attitudes and stereotypes about people with obesity. She goes on to say that such attitudes influence person perceptions, judgment, interpersonal behavior, and decision-making, to your point about perception versus reality. And... If doctors want to be relied on as a go-tos for health, it's time that they start respecting the overall health of all of their patients, including their their mental health, their emotional health, and then just like just generally treat patients with the respect and the compassion that they deserve. Yeah. It's, it's it's not that complicated. Yeah. Well, thank y'all. Uh, we cover a lot here and I think, I hope that it helped other people and planning this, it definitely um, helped me as someone who struggled with my weight and like hearing the research, like I said. Uh, so we definitely want to close out with some ways folks can better 
support the fat folks in their lives. And my advice is to worry about yourself. But <laughs> I know Good point. you have some, you know, I could leave it there. But yeah. have a fun. I know Oof. you you have some great takeaways. Um, so I definitely wanted to give you a chance to um, talk about some of the things you saw in your research. Um, yeah. So it's just like, you know, especially, I think especially over the last two years with pandemic, I hope that we've all had time to, you know, I think we all had time to be like, be a little more introspective. And so like, here are just like some introspective, like tips that we can do. Um, like we can get used to the idea of health and beauty at any weight. We can stop like equating like thinness as it relates to beauty or fat tummies as it relates to beauty. Like just think about health and beauty at any weight and realize that thinness does not equate health. Um, another one is just to kill your assumptions about larger people. Like yeah. you don't know anything about a person based on their weight besides um, the fact that they are just merely larger. Like that's really all you can tell based off of the weight. Um, and if you like, for instance, look at Lizzo. Like, do you know how much breath work it takes and core strength to be able to play the flute while singing and dancing? Like, how can anybody talk about her health? I can't do that. I can't do that. So take away your preconceived notions about people who are a heavier weight. And then just like interrogate this, the, the way that you look at the word fat. Like fat has been used to be connotated with something that's negative but it's just a descriptor. It just describes people. It's either negative nor positive, but like socially we've come to see it as being negative. And it, when we view it as negative, like it holds an unfair bias towards it. So last thing is just to examine the way that we look at fat as it relates to our own biases. And I mean, it's something that I'm working into my life too. Just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about Black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people give about five or 10 bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tarek Alani, Leslie Taylor Grover, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Albany Jones, Brianna Lambach, Garciella Melotesi, Zane Murdoch, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Sasha Kai Parker. 
who also edits the show. And Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Peace.